The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today as we discuss a really important and hot topic for most of you, namely requests for evidence or H-1B RFEs, trends that we're seeing and with some suggestions and discussion on how to analyze and dissect the situation so that you can try to hopefully obtain the approval, the elusive approval from the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service. Joining me today, I have two of our brilliant, knowledgeable attorneys from the Murthy Law Firm, First is Kevin Andrews, who is the attorney coordinator of the H-1B slash non-immigrant visa NIV department at this firm. And we also have TJ Sachs, who has been with the Murthy Law Firm for about eight years. And he too, like Kevin, focuses on H-1B slash non-immigrant issues. So for today's teleconference, we are going to discuss the trends that we're seeing with RFEs, primarily what we're seeing, as you know, is they're still processing, the USCIS is still processing H-1B cases that they received this year in April of 2018. The H-1B RFE issuance, as I think last year, but this year, this past year, and since April of 2017, they've really remained at ridiculously and historically high levels. And most of you are also probably familiar, which we'll discuss briefly, the February 22nd, 2018 USCIS new policy memo dealing with H-1B third-party placement work and whether an H-1B should be approved at all in such cases. We're also seeing the standard templates for RFEs with virtually most or all of the RFEs asking for some or all of the following issues. Some of them we have seen for years. Some are more in the recent year or so. The right to control, specialty occupation, particularly computer systems analysts, programmer, uh, computer programmers, uh, level one uh, jobs, or even level two sometimes for these positions. Uh, benef- the third is the beneficiaries' qualifications. Does the individual employees Um, job duties actually match the person's education and work experience. And finally, the maintenance of status. Is the student on F1 or the person on H1B eligible to obtain the change of status and or the um, uh, extension of status while on H1B, uh, whether it can be approved and whether the I-94 card should be attached by the USCIS to the approval notice. So with that, Kevin, if I could get started with you, can you just explain on what's going on since the February 22nd memo? Sure, Sheila. Thank you. So uh, right to control is something that probably many of our listeners have had to deal with uh, since uh, for many years. The first memo on right to control employer-employee relationship was in January of 2010. But USCIS seems to, with this new February 22nd memo, uh, to be asking for 
a lot more information and, you know, really adding teeth, I think, to this whole concept of documenting third-party placement. Um, you know, the way I think of this, Sheila, when I talk to my clients um, is, uh, and I think I told TJ too, that I think of this as like the game of Jenga. You know, when you're playing Jenga, you need to stack the structure, and there are three uh, wooden pegs in each layer that makes the structure the, the most sound that it can possibly be. So the three pegs for each layer that I think USCIS is expecting with right to control are a specific signed contract that shows that the real work relationship exists, the purchase order and or statement of work that shows a specific date of service, duration of service, and maybe even the employee's name. And then the third piece, the third uh, piece of the puzzle, I think, is the end client letter or the vendor letter that uh, ties together that whole narrative and has consistent information confirming who the employer is. And failure to provide all three of these layers is kind of like playing the game of Jenga, where you remove one or two of those pieces from that layer and hope that the structure still stands. So, um, but without providing these three pieces, and I think we've seen some cases already where end client letters and purchase order are provided but no contract, where uh, USCIS denying, specifically claiming that uh, they're not able to document the specific and non-speculative work, uh, which is language from that February 22nd memo, without this one, you know, Jenga piece that's missing. So I think that's a source of frustration for a lot of our clients right now. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, TJ, what about the impact on the duration of status? Sure, sure. So Kevin, I do like your Jenga analogy, and I've actually stolen it when, when <laughs> talking to some clients already. Um, but in, in addition to actually, you know, showing those, those three pieces, um, and, and establishing the right to control, it's also important to remember that you need to establish the duration as well. So even if you can establish duration for you know, six months, you know, a year ago, two years ago, they were actually approving those for one year or until the, the duration that you could establish. So you, know, you could establish duration for a year and a half, they were approving for a year and a half. But now USCS is essentially matching the validity date to the documentation that you have, um, which could be a few months, it could be a few weeks, um, and I've even seen cases where the validity period has passed and USCIS is issuing uh, an approval for a backdated validity period. And, and they're doing this sometimes without even issuing a request for evidence. So when you are putting together your, your H-1B petition, you need to be very careful that you're not submitting any type of documentation that's already expired. And if you do have documentation with a short validity period, you, you really need to, to think about additional types of evidence that you may want to provide. Yeah. Uh, TJ, I just wanted to ask, do you think that you're seeing that same kind of thing when there's a history of purchase orders and renewals and you send it to USCIS saying, look, here's a pattern. I mean, right, what, the current mm -hmm. one's valid for the three months, six months, but pattern of you know, renewal for three years, you still think you're seeing that phenomenon? I, now? I think you're, you're still seeing that. And, but if you did do that, I'd want to make sure that you explain it explicitly and instead of mm -hmm. just throwing in you know, four purchase orders that kind of stack up on each other. You really want to explain and put an explanation. This is the nature of the business, and that's why you're showing these, and that it's more likely than not that the project will continue to be extended. Right. Has that helped? I, I think it, it, it depends on the case, and, yeah. and I think one um, situation sometimes I think what, and maybe what TJ was talking about is the, you know, these adjudicators are probably very busy, and sometimes maybe they cherry-pick one piece and mm -hmm. focus on it, and so if that cherry-pick piece is the historic purchase order to show the pattern of practice instead of the current one, 
maybe that's what translates into some of these kind of confusions on the adjudication. Then it becomes on goes back to us to, you know, if it's premium, contact premium mm-hmm. processing or uh, place a, a service request. Yeah, my, my main concern would be that they see that first purchase order that's expired, you know, two years ago, and they give you a very short and validity period. So sometimes what I've been doing is even putting a little sticky note on that purchase order and say, see extended purchase order or something like that. Mm-hmm. So when they see that date, they know to look at another one. I love that. I always say that, you know, these examiners are so busy, the more you can spoon feed them, make their life really simple. Though when we did some of the walkthroughs back in the day, when they would actually give us the tours of the Vermont Service Center, Nebraska Service Center, et cetera, you see the contractors who are opening the mail, take out, tip, pull out all those sticky notes, pull out all those separator, separator <laughs> sheets, right. pull out all, all those mm-hmm. exhibit one, exhibit two. I mean, we literally used to spend oodles of time, effort, energy putting those exhibits. And I would watch these really, it was so aggravating and annoying. Literally, sp- we waste our time doing it to make the case approvable. And they would spend equal amount of time trying to dismantle and it, and, it. Yeah. and throw the whole thing in the trash can. Uh, while we were get doing the tour. So, but you certainly don't lose. I've done that with visas at uh, consulates where you put a sticky and the visa, the consular officer will sometimes take that into account and not cancel mm-hmm. the old H-1 visa if they, even, if, even if they're not going to issue the new H-1 visa because if they cancel it with or without prejudice, it's no longer valid. So at any rate, um, what we're also seeing is the Fraud Detection and National Security, or FDNS, is also checking with the end clients to confirm the work before the H-1B petition is approved. So in prior years, FDNS would only conduct inspections after the approval. Now they're doing it even while, before giving making a decision. So if the end client does not verify or confirm the requested information in a timely manner, the USCIS will either issue another RFE or even deny the case without issuing an RFE because they've, they're, they're, they're con- concerned about either fraud or some kind of a problem. Yeah, Sheila, I actually um, have this conversation with clients a lot, uh, especially when the end client documentation isn't very uh, voluminous. Uh, maybe we do have end client email and, and phone numbers, some, some person's contact information. And I have this conversation with my client to make sure, hey, if this person were called or emailed, do they know who the employer is? Will they give the accurate information? Because if so, I want to bold and underline and put that person's phone number and email in the RFE response because maybe that's the best thing. And knowing that FDNS is doing these uh, site visits or the cyber visits more frequently. But um, in November of 2017, which you know wasn't that long ago, the Office of Inspector General published a report about DHS, and basically it said that H1 uh, USCIS doesn't do a good job of confirming that people are complying with the program. And USCIS's response to the Office of Inspector General report was, "You're right. We agree." And I think ever since then, um, you, we've seen what was already an increase. Uh, in the FDNS checks, both the physical visits, but also the emails and the uh, phone phone calls. So I think it's really uh, critical knowing, you know, when you're responding to these RFEs, do you know whether or not the client and the vendor and any other party in between are going to give consistent, accurate information about who the employer is, what is the project, what's the job title, what's the duration? And that can be very challenging for some, you know, for some clients. So it's, it's, it's very, it's a struggle. and I think, uh, you know, something else to mention here is, you know, I know we've been talking about you got to get the client letter and the contract. 
Uh, but in reality, you got to get the best evidence that you can get. And that does require us, I think, to be a little bit more um, creative. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the starting point, I think, is confirming whether or not you can get that contract, the purchase order, statements of work. And if not, then focus on, you know, then only then would you focus on getting those creative pieces of evidence that I think maybe TJ can talk about. Um, but one last point I want to mention about this whole employer-employee relationship and, and this idea of uh, uh, EVC model, you know, vendors and clients. Um, in the past, I would tell my clients that the length of the chain doesn't matter as long as it's a strong one, you know. And I think since this February 22nd memo, I can't really say that anymore. Um, the memo does specifically talk about the strength of the chain be a, being a function of the length of the chain. In other words, if there's a lot of vendors involved, what the memo says is um, it's much more difficult to document the relationship and it's more tenuous. And um, if it's a petitioner-client relationship, if it's a direct relationship, uh, maybe it's much easier to satisfy their documentary standards for that kind of situation than having multiple vendors in between. Um, and that was something specifically set out in the new policy memo. So the more layers there are, I think that has to be part of the calculus about uh, whether and how to file for a lot of our clients. Okay, TJ. What about the what kind of what is the so-called best evidence sure. for the for the employers who are on this conference call? Um, sure, sure. So the, the best evidence is is all three of those pieces of the. Jenga game, um, if you will. Um, it's the contract, the applicable statement of work, work order, task order, purchase order, whatever it happens to be, and an end client letter or a client letter. And this, this documentation really should all explain the details of the project, the job duties and the requirements for the position, the duration, and things like that. And if, if even one of these you know, pieces is not available, it's, it's really important to get confirmation that it cannot be provided. And lots of times this is in the form of an email from the end client saying, hey, this, it's against our policy to provide contracts, it's against our policy to provide letters, et cetera. It could be an email from the vendor confirming the same thing, whether about the vendor or whether about, about the um, client. It's also important that I think that if, if the client is providing an email that they're not gonna provide documents, it, it shouldn't be an email addressed to the beneficiary because we've seen instances where USCIS then questions, oh, well, if the beneficiary is communicating with the end client, then really the, the petitioner doesn't have the right to control the beneficiary's work. So that's something you really do want to, to stay away from. And the second thing is, if, if you can't get this, you know, if you get this refusal and evidence that the, that the um, document can't be provided, you also want to get some sort of secondary evidence um, that, that can establish those things that the initial documentation would normally establish, such as um, you know, such as the the position details, the project details, um, maybe duration, and and what you can do is you know you got a beneficiary sitting there next to you know Fred at the at the end client location who is an employee of the end client, and and this person could provide a declaration confirming the the duties that this person's performing, confirming the um, project that they're working on, and sometimes they can even confirm who the person's employer is. Um, but, but ultimately, without, at the very least, I think it's very important to get some sort of um, contact information from the end client, um, whether it's just a, a, an email address or, or a phone number, so that, that they can confirm the project details if needed. Without this type of, of you know, contact information from the end client or any other documentation from the end client, it's, the case is very unlikely to be successful. Okay, thank you, TJ. So we have discussed right now the right of control issues. 
And two, we have discussed, so focused mainly on that so far. Now we're moving to the really, really hot issue that's becoming a big, big reason, not just for RFEs, but for denials, because the term that the a person on an H-1B needs to qualify as a specialty occupation, that's fundamental, and that's actually in both the statute itself in the black letter law and in the regulations compared to all these other you know issues about right of control etc those were more like in the newfeld memo from january of 2010 um, so what's the specialty occupation so what we're now seeing is that they're asking the uscis is asking for more detailed job duties for any position practically to determine whether the job normally requires at least a bachelor's degree, which means it's a four years bachelor's degree, or the equivalent of the four year US bachelor's degree in a specialty occupation. Uh, most of you know the specialty occupation, what it means in the statute itself, which is always outlined when we respond to the RFE or even file the H-1B petition, that it's sufficiently complex to require this minimum education. And the petition needs to clearly list a specific field of study that is required to do the job. So previously, even a few years ago, if you were listing just general engineering or math or physics, usually worked before because that would be considered close enough to maybe computer science on some levels. But now we're seeing that it's a problem because those fields are considered too broad to be really considered a specific field of study according to what the USCIS has determined more recently in their RFEs and decisions, of course, without you know, any, you know, change in the Administrative Procedures Act without any memo, even not even a memo or guidance in some cases. USCIS often raises the query about specialty occupation when the company is offering an IT position to a worker who has a degree that they believe is unrelated to the job or when the job code on the LCA indicates to the USCIS that something less then a bachelor's degree is the norm or the normal requirement. So an AA degree plus two years of experience, sorry, won't cut the mustard. Kevin? Um, yeah, specialty occupation is a moving target or something that's shifting from under our feet constantly. And, uh, you know, things that we thought would have been okay to do back, you know, even just a couple of years ago would, I, you know, would be like almost malpractice to recommend uh, today. And Sheila, you're right about the engineering and the math because we see in RFEs, um, I mean, I can even almost re re recite the, the boilerplate language in the RFE that there are 40 specialties of engineering. And did you mean, you know, genetic engineering or nuclear engineering or computer engineering uh, or industrial engineering? Uh, and, and similar language about math and some other fields. So I think what a, what a lot of my clients uh, often do is, you know, if somebody has a degree in electrical engineering, which I think is very directly related to computer science. Uh, maybe they'll say, oh, the job requires computer science, engineering or related, thinking that I have to list that engineering to, you know, meet that because my client, my worker has electrical engineering field of study. Um, I think the more appropriate course of action for something like that is to just list computer science because electrical engineering, I think, is directly related. Uh, the course, th there's programming and there's a lot of coursework that's very di directly related or should they to computer even science. Put, could they put computer science slash electrical engineering? 
Um, or, or related. I, I tend not to not to do that. I, 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 I that's probably a preference thing, but I think that may be a little too uh, too tailoring, and especially if it's a company that has you know a lot of people in the position. Um, computer engineering, I think, would if because that now it's a little bit computer more aligned with electrical slash engineering. Computer engineering sure. slash IT. Um, you know, IT relay slash electrical engineering or related. Right, and but, but, but and, and maybe not listing too many, but um, just making sure that if you're going to use a a a study or a discipline or a field that can actually encompass several others like math or uh, engineering to qualify it with something. Computer engineering, um, I think if you qualify it with electrical engineering, it's a little bit more worrisome. Yeah. But I think that's more yeah. of a preference. Uh, Okay, so let me just take a step back here, and I think that um, for the RFEs, the SOC code has already been defined. So what you need to do, first step, regardless of the first, the job that he's provided was five pages long or one page long or five sentences, uh, the first thing you need to do is give more detailed job duties, just adding more elaboration to the job duties that were already provided. Not adding new job duties, but adding more uh, specific, uh, more specificity to the duties already provided. Um, the duties do need to clearly align with the code that you chose, all right? Um, and if they don't, USCIS may say, oh, this LCA was certified for the wrong position, even if both the positions in question are, you know, clearly specialty occupations. Um, but what I think you need to do with the, at the RFE stage is consider taking the more detailed job description and getting a college professor in a relevant field, if we're talking about IT, a computer science college professor, to review those duties and give very specific detailed uh, explanation and analysis about why this job requires a bachelor's degree in computer science or related or whatever the specific field of study is. Um, that expert opinion is uh, then for the RFE response uh, can be corroborated with things like what the Department of Labor says, the OOH says about the occupation, uh, what the industry says, look at job ads. What does the company normally require for the position? That's probably the least credible thing because it's the own company's own requirements. But all of these things together would um, be consistent with the expert opinion. And really the case law on this is that if the expert opinion is not uh, controverted by anything else in the record, th the law does require USCIS to accept that substantive and probative uh, piece of evidence. So um, I, I think that tying all these things together and that expert opinion with the more detailed job description is the, the critical piece to, to, to do that. Have you been seeing, though, that the, using the expert opinions actually has come back to boomerang and hurt employers or employees? Um, I think that it depends on the circumstances. So, uh, and we'll talk about this about when qualifications, if you are getting an expert opinion to uh, to show that somebody qualifies because they have a non-IT degree and IT experience, those, I think, are subject to way more scrutiny and we see some criticism. But, uh, and TJ, mm -hmm. I don't know what your experience is, but I think when it comes to e explaining how the job itself is a specialty occupation, um, if they're going to the deny the case, I don't see them uh, being very critical about the expert opinion. It might be something else like elicit engineering or, or one of these mm -hmm. other factors. Yeah, I think what, I, what I'm saying is that using the expert opinion isn't actually hurting the case. It's not making it weaker. If U.S. is inclined to deny the case anyway, they're going to tell you why, they, why they're not going to take into consideration the expert, but they're not going to say, well, the expert said this, so therefore we're going to deny your case. Right. Okay. Okay. So let's go next to the level of wage level that you guys have been seeing, that all of us have been seeing. They've been really cracking down on the use of level one wages, particularly since over a year ago. Um, when President Trump, I guess, passed the on April 18th, 2017, his executive order called the Buy American and Hire American Executive Order. 
this executive order basically has directed governmental agencies to suggest reforms to help ensure that the H-1B visas are awarded to the most skilled or highest paid petition beneficiaries. It really is kind of crazy that an executive order would actually create a whole new definition of what is, of who is eligible for an H-1B. And I'm kind of surprised and shocked that many of the employers, including all of you on the conference call today, nobody has filed some kind of litigation, some kind of something to prevent this sort of new interpretation because the executive order, all of the other, you know, when, when the, the Muslim ban was placed, a lot of the American civil liberties unions and other uh, agencies, organizations jumped in to protect people. But for some reason, I think people didn't either realize or understand the impact on consulting companies and other businesses hiring people based on new criteria, which never existed in the law. It was never required for an employer to show that the H-1B employee is, in fact, the most skilled or the highest paid person in, in my workforce. But yet that's being used willy-nilly. So what else are you seeing, uh, TJ? Sure, sure. So, you know, we first thought level one is this big issue, um, and we were avoiding level one, um, trying to avoid level one like the plague. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it's not enough to just avoid level one. It's also important, and, and Kevin alluded to this a little bit earlier, it's also important to, to make sure that the job duties align with the SOC code that was chosen. So if you've got a developer job, but you 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 know use a computer systems analyst SOC code, USCIS is going to question that. And they're going to question whether you have a properly certified LCA. It's also important to make sure that the, the wage level that you do choose is consistent with, with the job title and the, the job duties. So, you know, we see a lot of people or a lot of positions that are, you know, senior software developer posi positions that are certified at a wage level two. Uh, this is DOL guidance, Department of Labor guidance, specifically says that the job titles with senior, lead, uh, something like that are, are, are jobs that indicate more of a level three position as opposed to a level two. So lots of times, if you do have senior in the title, you may want to remove the, the senior if it's being filed as a level two position. You also need to look at the job duties. The job duties talk about oversee, um, you know, oversee, manage, etc. That is also not indicative of, of a level two position. And also, if you have very highly advanced and innovative job duties, that could be, mean that the position is even more, even higher than a level three, like a level four. Um, in this new environment, H-1B petitioners need to make sure that the, the job duties are, are thoroughly reviewed to, to determine that the appropriate wage level is actually selected. The Department of Labor relies on the minimum education and experience requirements to determine the wage level, but USCIS's reinterpretation of, of level one, especially in light of the high American, by American that, that Sheila was discussing, means that it's, it's a good idea to, to qualitatively review the job duties and, and consider increasing the wage level, notwithstanding your actual minimum requirements. I mean, if you have job duties that are, that are you know, very clearly highly complex, they use words like exercise independent judgment or something like that, you, you really need to consider increasing the wage level to something above a two, a three or a four.
Okay, thank you. Yeah, I would I would say that the practical takeaway here, and whether it should be the the right thing, I, I, is probably another question. But the practical takeaway that I tell my clients is: that the higher the wage level, the lower the chances of denial on specialty occupation, and the inverse mm-hmm. is true too. Um, Which basically means the employer has to increase the salary and the wage to this very much higher level where they're coming up with this new legal right. requirement, which doesn't exist mm-hmm. in the statute, the law, the regulations, or anything else other than an executive order, which potentially really needs to be challenged. It's been a, a year at this point. It's been over a year. Um, and and uh, <clears throat> what you were alluding to about the executive order, Sheila, there is a regulatory agenda, I think, for early 2019 to redefine the definition of specialty occupation to make it sound like more of a competitive, you know, Hunger Games type of thing like this is than just a minimum qualifications thing the way it currently is written. Exactly. Okay, so now we've talked about the two hot topics, the the two hot issues on which they're uh, issuing the USCIS is issuing the RFEs, right to control and specialty occupation with a little bit of a discussion on the actual wage level one, two, three, and four The TJ just completed. Next, the big item is, of course, the qualifications of the employee slash beneficiary. And what we've been seeing is that USCIS has been applying a higher scrutiny to cases where the employee slash beneficiary is using a combination of education and experience to qualify for the position. And most commonly, like, for example, whatever, the BCom maybe. Mechanical engineering. Or mechanical engineering degree, et cetera. So, Kevin. Uh, Yeah, so this is definitely, uh, I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Uh, So in the past, somebody with a non-related degree but a combination of education and experience could uh, relatively easily qualify for the position by getting a college professor expert opinion confirming they have the equivalency. What the college professor would review is routinely maybe the person's resume and some experience letters. Uh, but USCIS started to apply a lot more scrutiny on these cases. I think it goes back to the you know most qualified part of the executive order. And um, they were not challenging the experts. They were saying these are real experts. They know what they're talking about. But what they're reviewing is not credible. Uh, like they're reviewing fake news or something. Like I'm looking at the, this letter is not a good enough letter. And the reason why they would say it's not a good enough letter often is that uh, it just lists some basic experience. It doesn't show how the individual has been recognized as having expertise in progressively responsible roles. So um, whenever I talk to a client about this, they, I say that and they're like, well, what does that even mean? <laughs> so uh, I always use an example about me. Like I've been worth, working at the Murphy Law Firm. Let's say I say, Sheila, I need an experience letter. Um, Sheila gives me an experience letter, says Kevin's been working at the Murphy Law Firm for 10 years. He reviews uh, uh, RFEs. He writes RFE responses. He, co- he communicates with clients and come up, comes up with legal strategy. His salary is X. That's my experience letter. Um, I could have used that experience letter, I think, in the past to get mm-hmm. my experience evaluation. But now it needs to read more like an, a story about a progression. Uh, Kevin started as a law clerk 10 years ago, and then he finished the bar and be- became a lawyer. And then he uh, did some achieved something, and then he was promoted, and then he started making this money. And then he uh, did this other thing and was promoted to this other job, and now he's the attorney coordinator. And um, same job duties, but told in a narrative that defines a progression. And I think that the letters... to that the ammunition that these college professors need to review have to sound more like the progressive narrative in the latter example than just the bullet point experience in the former. And this can be challenging if I got to go to, you know, my, my employer from five, ten years ago to say, hey, can I get this very detailed letter about all the amazing things that I did? Um, but I think that's precisely what USCIS is looking for. And if that is not what the professors are evaluating, they may dismiss the evaluator's opinion. Okay. 
So, boy, I mean, it's now we've ta- dealt with three of the, the big issues, the right to control, the specialty occupation and qualifications of the beneficiary. So the last or the most important, all equally important, especially if you're requesting a change of status approval within the U.S. or an extension of status if the person's on H-1B, changing if they're from F-1 or some other status or H-4, if for example, then um, we're seeing, again, a lot of questions Um, particularly in the past one year about maintenance of status, particularly with F1 students um, while using the curricular practical training or CPT. Um, Also, sometimes when they're on STEM OPT extensions and particularly when they are working at a third party location, um, which would apply to many people on this conference call. Um, so the USCIS issued a proposed policy memo about F1 status and the accrual, what they call the accrual of ULP or unlawful presence, which would become effective from August the 9th of 2016. Um, 18. Oh, what did I say? 2016? That's right. I'm losing yeah. my mind. Uh, yes, thank you very much. I even thought it, like, I obviously know it's 2018 because it was recent and not two years old. Um, the USCIS also revised their website earlier this year, stating that STEM OPT and third-party location work would be prohibited when that is not actually the case, according to both the Immigration and Customs Enforcement with manages the STEM OPT program and SEVP, which initially was like, we don't even know about this. And they were clueless and unaware of this this change that had occurred um, that was changed very sneakily and surreptitiously by the USCIS on their website, pretending to change the rules. And now I think from just a couple days ago, we just started seeing requests for evidence being issued specifically on this issue saying, how come you're filing a change of status when you are working at a third-party client location? Um, and I think that as employers, you need to really push back hard. I know there are organizations planning to file a lawsuit and combine and really challenge the USCIS on their craziness, this madness that's going on. But really, don't allow somebody to take advantage of you and just walk all over you as employers as I tell people all the time, you're paying taxes, you're doing all the right things, hopefully. And if you're not doing the right things, you need to change and start doing right things uh, and complying with the law. But when the government is blatantly wrong or doing something wrong, you absolutely need to challenge them and say, no, this is not a legally approved change. We beg to differ and respond to them. So, TJ, what would, what else are you suggesting? Sure. So I think one of the types of, of work authorization um, that we see students get is curricular practical training. USCIS, however, lots of times suspects that some designated school officials or DSOs and or the students are using CPT simply to to circumvent the rules for work authorization. For instance, you don't get selected in the H-1B cap, so all of a sudden you're going back to school for immediate CPT. Um, if, if this is questioned in a request for evidence, you can try and argue that, that the student complied with all of the rules they got the I-20 signed by the DSO. Um, you know, the, the, the um, employment itself or the training, should I say, actually meets all the requirements. But there's, there's still a chance that USCIS is, is going to deny the change of status request. 
um, types of documents you can provide in an RFE if this is questioned are the um, co-op agreement between the employer and the school, evidence from the school that CPT is integral to the program of study and or that the, the student is receiving academic credit for the CPT. Um, you have to show that the, the um, DSO actually authorized the, um, that the work was actually authorized by the DSO prior to starting employment. You could also show any other academic work completed for CPT, such as a paper reflecting on the internship or, or anything like that. Another thing that we, we are frequently seeing is if you live in state A, but you go to school in state B, USCIS is questioning, well, how can you do that? How can you go to school full time while living in you know, a different state? So you'd want to show travel receipts. You want to show a narrative of how you go back and forth, et cetera. Okay. I think, uh, also, TJ, I think it's worth pointing out that um, you know in practice what we see is uh, there do seem to be some schools that are um, uh, more liberal in their use of CPT mm-hmm. than others. It does seem like USCIS is aware of that, and uh, you know they don't they don't crack down on the schools. They they do crack down on the students, and the way they've cracked down on the students in the past is by denying the change of status request, like if it's a cap case. What we're worried about now is what Sheila was mentioning earlier about this new proposed policy memo that says starting August 9th, if the memo goes into effect the way it is now, that now uh, if you're out of status as a student, you're also unlawfully present. So does this mean if I'm working CPT, school you know, approves it, and ever, after August 9th, if USCIS doesn't agree, not only do they deny my change of status, but I've been unlawfully present that whole time, that's really scary stuff. So I know we're working on... Um, writing a comment, because we're still in the notice and comment period on this scary new rule, to, uh, to you know, ask USCIS how do they plan addressing these really unfair and ridiculous consequ- potential consequences. And more than asking, I think we're actually going to, in the column, the articles that we usually put called multi-takes action, where we actually focus uh, very heavily on um, that they really shouldn't be asking some of these questions or doing it in a manner that can come back to Uh, make it impossible for the employer to comply. So we also have the OPD question, for example, if someone's using either while they're on the 12-month optional practical training or the STEM OPT extension for the additional 24 months, the USCIS could ask uh, in the RFE um, how the degree is related to the work. This can be a problem for a person that's using the combination of education or combination of education or experience to now come up with, to show the equivalent to a related U.S. bachelor's degree for obtaining the H-1B petition approval. For change of status to be approved, the employer must establish and show that the employee, uh, that the degree, that the U.S. degree is directly related to the OPT or STEM OPT work. Yeah, Sheila, I think where we see this is um, maybe a situation where somebody is doing an MBA degree. Maybe there's even an IT concentration or something to it. And they're working in a you know software developer, clearly IT job. But the MBA is, the, the field is, is business administration. And um, so this can be a, a double you know whammy. How are you qualified for the position? And also, how are you even maintaining status? And uh, it doesn't come up that often, I don't mm-hmm. think. But when it does come up, you know, it's, it's uh, I think USCIS is identifying it much more, um, much more frequently. So there are like, I think a lot of, a lot more consequences to think about for people transitioning from F1 to H1 compared to the H1, uh, H1 to H1. 
so for example, if I'm working because of all these new rules. So for example, if I'm working on STEM OPT and I have it until 2020, or if I'm in CPT and I know that I you know want to keep extending. Uh, a real fundamental, and I have this cap case now that's pending, and they've asked, USCIS has asked how I'm maintaining status. You know, one question may be, do I want to just withdraw the change of status request? Because if I don't, and I respond with the stuff that TJ was mentioning, or, you know, whatever my argument is, USCIS may deny my status request, which would make me unlawfully present, starting with the denial decision. And if I had CPT or OPT beyond that date, now I don't have it. Um, uh, because you know it's it's gone with the de- the denial decision, but if I were to withdraw the request for change of status and just say, hey USCIS, just approve my petition, send it to the consulate, and they still approve the petition, they don't look into the maintenance of status because now I haven't raised that as an issue. I, I took that issue off the table. Uh, me now I can control when I get into H-1B status. Now I can control when I transition from F-1 to H-1. Um, so I think this is something to think about if you're the a kind of person who has a lot of F1 uh, or work authorization time in F1 status, because uh, if you lose it because you're transitioning to H1B, you don't care usually. Mm-hmm. But if you lose it in the in your quest for H1B and you don't have anything after that, it's something to think about. And we really have to think about this issue now because of this new policy memo, because USCIS updated the uh, uh, website in uh, earlier this year to say STEM OPT at a third party location is a problem. Okay. So now we're going to just briefly talk about the maintenance of, um, oh, we're going to talk about the strategic considerations for students. So you have the cap gap issue. You have F1 students who get the 60-day grace period if the H1B is denied or withdrawn before October 1st, um, as long as the USCIS does not find that there's been a status violation, what we just talked about, unlawful presence of status. If the student had OPT and was working on cap gap, then the student must stop working 10 days after the denial or the withdrawal request. TJ, what about STEM extensions for the, um, you know, what, what kind of time do they get for the opportunity? Sure, sure. So there's a, now there's a 24 months that, that students are permitted to request for their STEM extension. And this actually is, is very helpful because it, it gives them, if you don't get selected in the H-1B cap, it gives you another shot or potentially, depending on the timing, two more shots under the H-1B cap. And if, if cases are being selected at you know more than a 50% rate, you've got a very good chance of eventually being selected in the cap. Um, and Kevin kind of alluded to this a little bit before and, and discussed it, but if USCIS denies the change of status request and finds that the, that the beneficiary did not maintain F-1 status, uh, maybe because of a CPT issue or there are you know, some issues with the, with the um, STEM OPT or, or regular OPT, then the student no longer has work authorization. And even if they have time remaining in on their CPT or on their OPT, and that could be a substantial amount of time. If you just got your STEM extension, you have two full years left. So that's why even at the initial filing stage or, or maybe at the RFERI stage, you really want to may, may want to consider filing for, for consular notification or at that RFE stage, withdrawing the, the status request to preserve that, you know, almost two full year time that, that you could have remaining. And that would be if USCIS is specifically challenging the mm-hmm. status, maintenance of status in that RFE mm-hmm. where you'd think about it. Exactly, that. exactly. Right. Okay. And next, let's look at the um, issue about maintenance of status for H-1B workers. Since the February 22nd policy memo, some RFEs have actually been asking for proof of the old project, the prior project, so that 
the employer can show that the employee slash beneficiary has maintained status with the prior petition while the prior petition was valid, which can be quite tough or burdensome for many comp- uh, employers um, and especially difficult to document after the project has already ended. And so, again, you come back to the same issue of whether you just want to try to ask for the extension of status, but then you get the benefit of the 240-day um, you know, extension work authorization, whereas if you switch it to a consular notification case, even if you've asked for extension, but without the extension of status, then maybe you don't have the benefit of the t- almost eight-month work authorization. Um, I think that would be ch- more challenging uh, because if you change it to a consular case, they got to stop working at the new project. Um, so, so it's worth taking the risk and lo- getting a denial and now being considered unlawfully present and all of that? All things being equal, I would say more so with the H than, than the F example that we were talking mm-hmm. about. Um, but I would say that this, what you were mentioning, how you know, you're right, after this policy memo, there's definitely this, this idea that you have to document the existence of the old project. We've seen this since there was also this no deference to prior decisions memo with the new administration, you know, just because uh, USCIS approved something in the past doesn't mean we'll give deference to that decision. And I think these two things have combined together, this new policy memo from February and this no deference uh, from a little bit Mm -hmm. uh, earlier. And uh, so in some cases, USCIS is saying, you know, prove the old project, give us the contracts, purchase order statements of work and the new project. Uh, sometimes they're only asking for pay stuff. So I don't see it happening often, but it's more, it, it, it does happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know we always try to stay between the 30 to 45 minutes, and we're very close to the 45 minutes, and we promise you we'll be done hopefully within five minutes from now. So just hang in there because we have some really good couple of very good tips for you or your lawyer. If you're already working with multi-law firm, then we always do mention some of these important issues. Um, basic rules of evidence as lawyers is you have... Um, you know, everybody watches on TV with crim- crime and criminal issues beyond a reasonable doubt. And the USCIS is asking questions from you as an employer, for you as employers, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that your candidate is qualified for H1. No, no, we don't have to show beyond a reasonable doubt. That's in a pure criminal proceeding. In a quasi-criminal proceeding, you have something called clear and convincing evidence. But in a regular civil case, which this is a civil matter, all you need to do as an employer is show by a preponderance of the evidence, which means more likely than not, that this person should be eligible for an H-1B petition approval, not with fraud, flimsy, made-up changes in the law reasons created by Trump or his administration, but by real legal reasons. Um, Kevin, what are the other issues? Yeah, so standard of proof is definitely really important to remind, I think, the government uh, now more than ever. Uh, as you said, this is not a criminal proceeding. In addition to the the standard of proof, I think it's also sometimes very important to remind USCIS that uh, specific kinds of evidence that aren't required by, by law, by regulation, can't be specifically requested. Um, so like a contract, there's no regulation or law that says you have to provide the end client letter in the contract. You need to prove that the work exists. But USCIS is supposed to accept totality of the evidence un- under that standard of proof that, that you just mentioned, Sheila. Um, the other thing is when USCIS wants to deny a case or they're inclined to deny a case, they have to give specific reasons why. And I think what we're seeing a lot lately is, uh, or more frequently, are uh, conclusions maybe not so much supported by any explanation. It's almost like the decisions are a boilerplate template as much as the RFEs are, which can be very frustrating. It, 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 uh, it impedes on our whole, this whole concept of due process to be able to 
you know, actually overcome the real reasons for the for the denial uh, by giving us generic and and conclusion without support uh, supported by the why. Okay, um, TJ. Yeah. Sure. So generally, when you when you are responding to an RFE, you have 87 days to respond. It's it's generally better to you know the sooner you respond, the better. But there may be strategic reasons why you want to wait until you know the very end to respond. For instance, if you need continued work authorization or something like that. And this is another issue that we're seeing much more frequently than we've really seen in the past is the issuance of a second RFE. So normally you, you file an RFE response, you think, okay, I'm going to get my decision, and that's going to be it. But now we're seeing much more frequently that USCIS is issuing, issuing a second RFE on a wholly different issue that they did not even bring up on the first RFE. Sometimes they're even reiterating the first issue. Um, so generally they're, they're issuing the second RFE, but they can also issue a notice of intent to deny. And in, in those cases, you only have 30 days to respond. Okay. Um, you know, we really, as I said, we need to try to wrap this up in two or three minutes. So um, I really want to say that how you prepare the petition up front, as strong as you can make it, will clearly save you time, effort, and energy, and hopefully not either getting an RFE or being able to push back and fight hard. Now, obviously, if it was a cap, uh, H-1B cap subject filing that was filed uh, around April 1st, then you have less opportunity to provide a whole bunch of information in advance, mainly because you don't know what work you're going to have six months from now, starting October the 1st. Most employers don't know that, so especially in the uh, third-party placement IT consulting company type of scenario where there's an employer-vendor-client type of model. Uh, we are seeing, as you, all of us have been seeing, investigations and site visits continue to be on the rise. So internal compliance is, again, very important for you as a company to ensure that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's with respect to compliance of papers and documentation. Um, at Multi Law Firm, we actually have a whole compliance audit investigation team. We have the H-1B non-immigrant team. Uh, so we have vast and varied experience to address all of these issues. God forbid you do get an RFE or a threat of a notice of intention to deny that DJ just referred to. So feel free to contact us at murthy.com, uh, Murthy Law Firm, um, because I would rather save the money and time by really focusing as much as possible to get the approval. Um, so this is a very, very um, sort of something that's been changing as we've all been seeing in the last several months. Um, and we really, really hope that Working together, we can challenge the government, work hard, respond strongly to the RFEs, and uh, hopefully obtain those elusive, difficult to obtain approvals. But we continue to get them, but it's, it's not as common as it was something that you could take for granted maybe two or three years ago before the Trump administration, in fact. Uh, so on behalf of Kevin Andrews, TJ, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we want to thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference on H-1B RFEs uh, and hope that we can continue to help you obtain those approvals. Thank you and have a great afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.